Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 welcome to the georgine rice show podcast this program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 kpdq we hope you enjoy the show well good afternoon and welcome to the tuesday edition of the georgine rice show glad to have you with us today james blend is engineering and producing today's program later this hour we'll talk with robin bertram she's the author of hidden treasures finding hope at the end of life's journey the book is full of scripture to help encourage um, those who are are struggling or making their way toward heaven we're also going to talk in the five o'clock hour with nick loris he's the herbert and joyce morgan fellow in Energy and Environmental Policy at the Center for Free Market and Regulatory Reform. We'll talk about problems with the new climate change report released on uh, Friday last, the day after Thanksgiving. We'll talk with Alexis Mrachek, who is a research assistant in Russia and Eurasia and part of the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy, uh, about uh, what happened between Russia and the Ukraine. Each is pointing the finger at the other. We'll try to give some context to better understand what, it, what happened and what it might mean. Meanwhile, stories developing. President Trump said some migrants, some of them, used children as human shields during violent clashes at the border on Sunday. Voters in Mississippi have gone to the polls in the closely watched runoff election between Republican U.S. Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith and Democrat Mike Espy. Uh, Russian special counsel Robert Mueller uh, has accused former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort of violating his plea agreement without going into detail, but saying that he lied repeatedly to federal investigators. Manafort insists he's been truthful, but could face more criminal charges and a longer prison sentence. His plea deal may be null and void. And President Trump, in an interview days before the G20 summit this weekend, said he expects to move forward on raising the tariff levels on $200 billion in Chinese goods. NASA's spacecraft InSight lander successfully landed on Mars on Monday and already has sent its first picture back to Earth. Well, at a Monday night roundtable in Mississippi on his bipartisan criminal justice reform effort, President Trump charged that some migrants he identified as grabbers who rushed the San well, the California border, point to the entry on Sunday essentially uh, as uh, misusing and abusing children as human shields at the border. The president turned to the widely circulated images from Sunday's clashes, which showed some migrants running away with children as tear gas canisters landed nearby. Videos and images from the port of entry also showed migrants throwing what appeared to be rocks over the fence and attempting to breach the wall. In some cases, you know, they're not parents, Trump said. These are people, they call them grabbers. They grab the child because they think they're going to have a certain status by having children. You know, you have certain advantage and things with our crazy laws that, frankly, Congress should be changing. It goes on from there. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, in a statement on Monday, Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen backed the president's comments, adding that recent caravans were larger and more organized than previous uh, previous ones. Authorities, she said, had identified at least 600 convicted criminals traveling with the migrants. 
Meanwhile, Republican U.S. Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith appeared poised for an easy runoff against her Democratic challenger after the first round of voting in Mississippi's special election earlier this month. But after a series of high-profile controversies, Hyde-Smith, who was appointed in March to fill the Senate seat vacated by Thad Cochran, is locked in a contentious fight with Democrat Mike Espy in what has become the most competitive Senate race the state has seen in decades. And former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort lied to the FBI and special counsel Robert Mueller's office on a variety of subject matters since his plea deal earlier this year, thereby violating the agreement, Mueller said, in a court filing submitted this evening while adding that Manafort claims he's been truthful. Manafort who 69 was convicted on multiple counts of financial fraud over the summer in connection to work he completed in Ukraine as a political consultant. Approaching a separate trial on similar charges in September, he entered into an arrangement with the government in which he was expected to answer questions on a wide variety of matters. Manafort remains jailed and is expected to face at least 10 years in prison. Mueller's joint status report noted that both sides called for a sentencing date to be set without delay. Four days before a summit uh, with China's leaders, President Trump said he expects to move ahead with boosting tariff levels on $200 billion of Chinese goods to 25 percent, calling it highly unlikely that he would accept Beijing's request to hold off on the increase. In an interview with The Wall Street Journal, the president said that if negotiations don't work out, he would also put tariffs on the rest of Chinese imports that are currently not subject to duties. If we don't make a deal, then I'm going to put $267 billion additional on on uh, at a tariff rate of either 10 percent or 25 percent. He was speaking uh, to, uh, again, the Wall Street Journal's Bob Davis. And NASA announced that its Mars InSight lander landed successfully on the surface of the red planet, ending a journey that lasted six months and more than 300 million miles. And the spacecraft wasted no time in getting the first pictures back to Earth. My first picture on hashtag Mars. My lens cover isn't off yet, but I just had to show you a first look at my new home. NASA tweeted, showing off the first image. The InSight land, uh, lander rather entered Mars' atmosphere just shortly after 2.40 p.m. Eastern Time on Monday, touched the uh, surface at approximately 2.54 p.m. Eastern Time. The last part of the journey was the most harrowing, with NASA calling it seven minutes of terror due to the agency's inability to control the landing of the spacecraft, which cost about $828 million. The anxious final moments of the lander's journey ended when a NASA official declared touchdown confirmed, sparking scenes of celebration at Mission Control in the agency's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. And on this day in 1962, the first Boeing 727 is rolled out at the company's Renton plant. And on this day in 1924, Macy's first Thanksgiving Day parade, billed as a Christmas parade, took place in New York. Three American service members were killed in a roadside bomb attack in Afghanistan today, marking the deadliest day for U.S. forces in the embattled country this year. Now, we sometimes forget that we have men and women stationed in Afghanistan in places we may not hear about or think about, but three lost their lives today serving us. Three American troops were killed and three others were wounded in the attack in the notorious Taliban hotbed um, Ghazini City after their uh, armored vehicle drove over a massive bomb buried under the road. An American contractor was also wounded in that attack. Including Tuesday's attack, 12 Americans have been killed in combat in Afghanistan this year. 
Five Americans have been killed this month alone. The victims in the attack Tuesday weren't immediately identified. In accordance with U.S. Department of Defense policy, the names of the service members killed in action are being withheld until 24 hours after notification of next of kin, according to military officials. So that should be made public shortly. But three families are grieving. Three families will experience a holiday they hadn't anticipated. They had not prepared for grieving the loss of their loved ones. And we would do well to remember the sacrifice they made by simply agreeing to serve our country in that place. 15 minutes after four o'clock is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Also, later this hour, we'll talk with the Robin Bertram. She's the author of Hidden Treasures, Finding Hope at the End of Life's Journey. She is an author. She's a seasoned conference speaker, a former host of the nationally syndicated television program Freedom Today. Uh, she is a, has been a prayer warrior for decades, and we're going to talk about how to face that um, that journey at the end of life's continuum. Well, according to military officials, the active shooter reported at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center Tuesday afternoon was, in fact, a drill. I arrived at work, turned the television on, and there it was, uh, the announcement that there was an active shooter and that the uh, patients and others there were on lockdown. Well, the Navy confirmed that there was no active shooter and it was an ad hoc drill. And all clear was given at about 3.20 p.m. Lieutenant Colonel Andrika Harris also told CNN the situation at Walter Reed was an exercise. Apparently, no one told Maryland Representative Dutch uh, Ruppersberger uh, it was a drill. Um, uh, We've been given the all clear at Walter Reed. You have to be there at the time. Uh, Ruppersberger tweeted about an active shooter at Walter Reed around 2.31 and said he was sheltering in place. I'm currently at Walter Reed Medical in Bethesda, where we've been told there's an active shooter. I am currently safe in a conference room with approximately 40 others. Well, another tweet from uh, the representative account uh, at 3.04 stated that he remains sheltered and he again confirmed he didn't believe Uh, it to be a drill, when in fact it was, but he and others apparently were not told. Outside the facility, a massive police response could be seen from from, uh, Chopper 13 as cars waited to enter the facility uh, were lined outside. The Montgomery County Police Department also responded to the scene to help with the investigation. Um, uh, WJZ reporter Mike Helgren uh, was on the scene. He reported the gates were closed and the medical center as well. People inside the facility were also not aware that the situation was just a drill. Many said they were scared and sheltering in place. Uh, I'm not sure what the wisdom is behind not telling people. Um, Perhaps people behave differently if they uh, don't think this is a real situation. But uh, nonetheless, it was a drill. And thankfully, there was no active shooter. Well, today is Giving Tuesday. We've had, let's see, Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, um, Cyber Monday. We've also heard about Cyber Mom Day. Not quite sure what that all entails. But today is Giving Tuesday, and it's an opportunity for charitable organizations to uh, appeal to your generosity by suggesting that while you are buying gifts for others, consider those uh, who need your help. And so in that process, you might want to consider some of the fine organizations that you hear here on KPDQ for charitable giving on this Charitable Giving Tuesday. 
Well, charities have received less money so far this year, and you might want to think about that as well, from fewer donors. It's a trend that could be exacerbated in the fourth quarter due to changes made to the U.S. tax code. According to a recent study from the Association of Fundraising Professionals, as of the end of September, the number of donors declined 6.6% in the second quarter of 2018 when compared with the previous year. The donor retention rate, or the number of donors who plan to give to the same organization, declined 6.4% during that same time period. Overall, revenue has declined so far this year when compared to 2017 as have $1,000 plus gifts and gifts under $250. We were worried after the first quarter, but I'd say after the second quarter data, alarm bells should be ringing for most charities. That's a quote from the chair of the Growth in Giving Initiative, Elizabeth Boris. Well, part of the reason for the decline could be tax reform. As a result of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act signed into law nearly a year ago, a smaller number of Americans are expected to benefit from the charitable giving deduction, which calls into question, what is my motivation and now how will I continue to give if this impacts me? The tax law upped the standard uh, deduction for nearly double for um rather by nearly double for both individuals and married couples, which is expected to result in fewer people itemizing. Well, according to estimates from the Tax Policy Center, the number of people who claim the deduction for charitable giving is expected to decline to 16 million this year from 37 million. That is significant when you are a nonprofit. Higher income Americans may continue to itemize and will therefore benefit from charitable giving deduction, compounding an ongoing trend showing charities are relying on contributions from a shrinking pool of donors. The fourth quarter is usually the most popular for charitable giving, hence Giving Tuesday. Experts say record numbers at the end of 2017 signal people may have been looking to uh, take advantage of the deduction while it was still financially advantageous to do so. Well, the news isn't all bad for charities. However, Chris Edwards, who's the director of tax policy studies at the Cato Institute and editor of DownsizingGovernment.org, said an increased limit for charitable deductions under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, as well as strong economic growth, will spur Americans to continue donating. Let's hope. He's right. He went on to uh, say Americans are the most generous people on the planet, and they will continue to do so with the new tax law in place. So on this uh, Giving Tuesday, you might want to consider that and uh, consider giving to a charitable organization that you care about. Well, Adobe Marketing and Customer Insights Vice President John Copeland um, pointed out that uh, the 2018 edition of Cyber Monday will get uh, will go into the books as the largest US online shopping day of all time. That's according to data from the organization, Adobe Analytics. Uh, Cyber Monday is projected to um, hit 7.9 billion by the end of the day. Uh, the that represents a 19.7% increase year over year as of 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. That's uh, yesterday and that has um, jumped even Higher. Despite some of the best deals coming earlier in the holiday season, the Cyber Monday brand has great staying power. The director of Adobe Digital's Insight says many shoppers have been waiting on certain purchases with three hours um, uh, of the final hours expected to bring in bigger numbers, which were realized. Meanwhile, Nash, uh, the National Economic Council director Larry Kudlow on General Motors' decision to lay off 15 percent of its salaried North American workforce uh, points out that the largest U.S. car maker also said it will halt production at facilities in Lordstown, Ohio, um, Hamtrak, um, get that right, Hamtrak, uh, Michigan, and uh, Oshawa, Ontario. Why couldn't they just be, you know, really easy names? Further plants in White Marsh, Maryland, uh, Warren, 
Uh, Michigan will be um, unallocated in addition to the previously announced closure of the assembly plant in Gunson, Korea. Uh, GM is going to cease the operation of two additional plants outside North America by the end of 2019. The move uh, moves are calculated to dramatically slash costs and capital expenditures as certain vehicles just are no longer in demand. Well, several manufactured plants, uh, manufacturing plants in North America will be idled. Thousands of workers laid off. Six models are set to be eliminated, leaving a handful of four-door cars in GM's showrooms, at least for now. Uh, the ones riding off into the sunset include the Chevrolet Volt, the second generation of the company's once-heralded plug-in hybrid. Uh, hasn't sold much better than the original, but did outsell the surviving all-electric Bolt EV through September of this year. Uh, they're looking to get rid of the Chevrolet Cruze. It may be GM's most popular car globally, but U.S. sales of the compact sedan and hatchback have uh, tanked in recent years. The Chevrolet Impala, the classic American full-size sedan, hasn't fared any better than the Cruze and is moving aside in favor of the upcoming rebooted Chevrolet Blazer. The Cadillac C26, the flagship sedan, has been uh, sunk by the popular Escalade SUV and a, a three-row crossover expected to debut soon. Uh, they're also going to tank the Cadillac XTS, the oldest car in Cadillac's lineup, still does well with the um, livery car set and makes a fine um, hearse, uh, but that's not the image GM is uh, betting on, its future on, rather. And the Buick LaCrosse, it actually um, outsells the Regal, but it's built in the same factory as the Impala, Volt, and C, uh, CT6 and can't keep the lights on all by itself. So these are some of the vehicles that uh, will be no more. Well, on three past occasions, presidents of the United States temporarily closed the southern border, something President Donald Trump threatened on Monday to do permanently. Presidents Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan both closed the border over drug-related issues that halted entry from Mexico into the United States. President Lyndon Baines Johnson, shortly after taking office amid crisis, closed the border after the assassination of his predecessor, John F. Kennedy. And while Johnson's example was unique, all three cases dealt with the president's authority to act on the border during an emergency. The Trump administration has determined that the series of caravans of thousands of Central American migrants headed to the border is an emergency. Now, we've just seen the first wave, and we understand there are at least two others much larger than this first wave that are making their way toward the United States as well. With Nixon in 1969 and Reagan in 1985, as uh, is the case today, the United States was trying to pressure the Mexican government's law enforcement into stepping up its effort. The president tweeted early on Monday, Mexico should move the flag-waving migrants, many of whom are stone-cold criminals, back to their countries. Do it by plane, do it by bus, do it any way you want, but they are not coming into the United States. We will close the border permanently if, we, if need be. Um, Congress fund the wall, end quote. And that was tweeted on Monday. Before boarding Marine One on Monday afternoon, the president told the uh, a gaggle of reporters, Mexico wants to see if they can get it straightened out. But we've, uh, during certain times, as you know, closed the border. Here's the bottom line. Nobody is going to come into this country unless they come legally. Well, of course, the American Civil Liberties Union, which uh, has sued the Trump administration on multiple fronts, uh, gaining a recent lower court victory, halting the uh, administration's asylum policy, declined to comment. Uh, but the organization is calling for Congress to pull funding from the Department of Homeland Security amid the border crisis. And then, of course, the Congress itself failing to deal with that issue sufficiently to uh, avoid similar issues moving forward. 
30 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back momentarily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Some of us, maybe some of you or people you love and care about, are facing life-threatening diseases, terminal illness, long-term care, family members. But we have few resources to rely on in these difficult times. The book we're going to talk about in the next two segments, Hidden Treasures, delivers practical solutions to the problems everyone has to deal with at some point in life. It's based on experiences derived from 25 years of prayer ministry. Uh, The author provides insight and guidance to equipped patients, family members, friends to walk through these challenging times with foresight, looking for and expecting to see God at work in many miraculous ways. Hidden treasures will inspire, motivate and encourage loved ones to begin to walk the road to heaven without the fear and anxiety that's often associated with death and dying. And ultimately, it reveals that hope is available. Death with dignity is possible. God is always with us. And there are hidden treasures to embrace along the way. And I love the way the book is written because those hidden treasures are made more visible uh, to us as she uh, emphasizes them throughout the book. Again, we're talking about hidden treasures, finding hope at the end of life's journey. My guest, Robin Bertram, is an author, seasoned conference speaker, a former host of the nationally syndicated television program, Freedom Today. Her passion for the word, love for people, and heart to serve were developed early on in her life as a pastor's kid and have continued through her life's journey. Her straightforward approach, her in-depth biblical insider, healing hearts and transforming lives as she delivers vibrant messages of encouragement, freedom, and victory in Jesus Christ, even at the end of life. Robin is Vice President of Media Relations for Christian Women in Media. She serves on the National Advisory Board and was honored with the 2010 and 2012 National Advisory Board Service Awards, impacting, influencing, investing in women, her mission, and the message is simple, to spread the gospel across the world, which she does in her latest book, Hidden Treasures, Finding Hope at the End of Life's Journey. Thank you so much for joining us today, Robin. It is wonderful to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. (laughs) This is a difficult topic, and you don't just write about it as someone who is uh, offering sage advice, but you've actually lived through much of what you write about. And so it's an informed reflection um, that draws our attention towards Scripture and offers some really significant tools to help us along the way. Tell us a little of your story. I would love to. Thank you. Um, Several years ago, about four and a half years ago, I was having some very serious health challenges. I went to Mayo Clinic. They gave me four diagnoses. They took three off the table. They left on the table only one, which had a life expectancy of two years with a very painful path to death, no medicine, no treatment, and no hope. And during that time, I sat down and finished this book, Hidden Treasures, that the Lord had really inspired me to write 10 years prior. Mm. Um, And it was only through my own need that I, I really understood the relevance and the importance of what the Lord had asked me to do 10 years prior. I had worked with families over the years in prayer ministry, and I've walked with many families through the process of the a long-term illness, even to the pathway to death. And, but it was not until I had my own difficulty, uh, Georgine, that I really understood what I needed to put in this book. Uh, you know how God's timing is perfect. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. So when I was going through those struggles, I sat down and I finished the book. And this is what I found out. 
I found out by just looking around at my own situation, we all have the same questions. What are we going to do? How are we going to get through this? Where is God in the midst of all this? And those questions are what each and every one of us will have to deal with um, at some point in our life, whether we're facing long-term or terminal illness of our own, or we're walking with a family member, an elderly parent, even a person that has lost a child or families that are going through divorce, it's all the same. And when we're in those periods of darkness, if we don't really understand that God is there, that he's working behind the scenes, that his word is true, then we don't have any hope at all. So the book, uh, I really hope and pray one of my goals was to inspire uh, the reader to first start to look inward. So the first part of the book is really about looking inward because, Georgine, if we don't know what God has given us ourselves, our gifts, our talents, then we can't possibly be a help to someone else. And then the middle part of the book is looking outward. And the reason I did that is because I know from personal experience, when you're going through an illness, you you have to rely on others. We're not meant to walk this journey alone. And so I spend quite a, few, a bit of time just talk, encouraging and, and giving strong suggestions and resources on how to depend on others. And then the end of the, the last section of the book is looking upward. And, of course, that's about having a heavenly perspective. Uh, when you're going through really difficult days, trials and tribulations, if you don't look from a heavenly perspective, you get lost in all of the weight of the situation. Mm. Um, so I, I really I pray that and I feel that God gave me the insight to do it. Um, throughout the book, I have just nuggets of wisdom and they're scriptures and insight that the Lord gave me on my personal journey that I found great comfort in when I was facing this uh, traumatic life change. And then um, I also added in the book at the end of each chapter what I call treasure chest. You know, in God's Word, he said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and, and rust can destroy it, but store up treasures in heaven. So at the end of each book, I have key uh, seven keys from each chapter that will help the reader find light in the midst of their own personal darkness. And then I also have, at the end of the book, I think one of the most important and valuable resources that I have, Georgina, in the whole book, is uh, it's called Love in Action. And it's where, uh, it's literally like a two-page tear sheet where if you're going through it or a family member is going through it, you can rip those tear sheets out, you can give them to someone, and they can become like a family advocate for your family when you're struggling. And I tell you, when you're going through a health challenge, you can't even figure out how to get the, the uh, you know, how to get the mail to the mailbox or how to get groceries from the grocery store. Everything seems overwhelming. And one person taking on the responsibility of the love in action can just be immense list for that family that's struggling. Yeah, make all the difference in the world. One of the things yeah. I especially appreciate about the book is how practical it is. The book is has in its title the word 
uh, treasures, hidden treasures, but they're not hidden in your book. You take great <laughs> pains to uh, to make it very clear what some of these uh, nuggets of wisdom are, what some share worthy things are, these uh, treasure um, boxes at the end, so that people don't have to look too hard to find encouragement in each of your chapters. Yes, yes. Well, you know, in Isaiah 45, 3, I love the scripture. The Lord says, I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. And I think of that scripture, Just it's just such a beautiful reminder that God, he summons us by name, and he has riches stored in secret places. And truly, it's, it's, it's his word. His word is so rich with treasures that get us through those times of, and challenges. Mm. Uh, the other thing I, I want to emphasize is that your book is saturated with scripture. It sets it apart from many other resources one might look to. Uh, to help us have an eternal perspective through what may be the most challenging and difficult season of a life. Absolutely. Georgine, this is what I believe. I believe your faith defines your life. It also defines your death, and it defines everything in between. So what do you really believe? And so the whole book is geared around the, the written Word of God because it is a strong foundation. And if you have that strong foundation, you can get through. I remember one day I had been through about a month or two of darkness. Just it's so depressed I couldn't lift my head. And I remember the Lord speaking to my heart, and it was like he was saying, Robin, are you going to believe what you've taught for the last 30 years? Yes, Lord. Mm. (laughs) It's like I had to shake off the depression. I had to shake off the fear. And I had to decide. I had to make a decision. I'm going to believe this word no matter what. I'm going to stand on it because I know it's truth. And I'm going to trust God that you're sovereign and you have my best interests at heart. Amen. And that's a hard thing to do, but this book will certainly, hopefully, help the reader do just that. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Robin Robin Bertram. She's the author of Hidden Treasures, Finding Hope at the End of Life's Journey. The book is published by Abingdon. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 52 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Robin Bertram. She's the author of Hidden Treasures, Finding Hope at the End of Life's Journey. As you pointed out, the book is divided into um, dealing with one's own um, inner life during this season and then uh, how to navigate um, and rely on others uh, to help, let's begin with what you point out is living well and dying well. Is it necessary for a person to have lived a virtuous life to experience uh, a death that is um, uh, that that is managed well? No, it's not. Uh, the most important thing is on that journey when an individual makes one simple decision. And that decision is to believe with your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. When they have made that decision, God is with them through the entire process. And, Georgine, it is the key 
to the hidden treasures of life and death. Because when we make that one decision, everything changes. Everything. All the past is wiped clean by Jesus. He, he wipes that record clean where as though it never happened. And we get to walk in the blessings of the Lord knowing that there is eternal life. And what that means is when we leave this earth, when we close our eyes, we will end up in eternity and we'll either be heaven, heavenly bound to be with Jesus or we will be uh, headed toward destruction and hell. And there's only, two, there's only two paths. And so no matter what their life may have been, uh, they can make a simple decision. And that one decision, God will walk with them. He will bring them comfort and peace during the process. I'm telling you, my father, when he passed on to be with Jesus, I, I literally felt like I was at a wedding celebration. The and I know that sounds odd, but my father was a pastor for 50 years. He served people. He loved God. He loved people. And it showed, it just in, through the entire night, the love that and the outpouring from the people because of my father's life. I think that's a life well lived. But we can still live a good life knowing Jesus by a simple decision. Mm. Now, I think one of the big questions that those of us who are not walking through that journey ourselves, but are trying to minister to, encourage and support those who are, what's the best thing we can do to help those who might feel alone as they're making their way toward heaven? Oh, that's a great question. Um, in in uh, um, Exodus, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I'm aware of their suffering. And these are the things that people think immediately when, when this kind of tragedy hits. Does God see? Does he hear? Does he care? And this one scripture, he does see, he does hear, he does care. And I think that is the the beautiful thing that you can minister. I, I believe this book ought to be in every church throughout the entire country as a as a means to help people go through grieving process. But because this is what I thought. Even when I went through it, Georgine, I was like, God, where are you? You know, you start you start looking, where are you? He's there all the time. And so in that moment of crisis, we can come along beside our loved one. God is with you. And, and then you can start to look around and watch the miracles unfold. Uh, the card that comes at the perfect time with the perfect words that lifts your spirit. That's from God. The dinner that you didn't have to make because a, a loving friend brought a dinner over, that's God in action. When we start to know that God is working behind the scenes, that he really is touching people's lives to, to impact our life and vice versa, then we can start to understand that he really does care and he is watching, and he did send his son to die on a cross so that you and I could live ever after, an everlasting life. There's no greater love than that. 
And so I'm, I encourage the, the reader by, by really learning to share these scriptures with those who are struggling. Uh, sometimes the worst thing we can do is just, just not speak up. But this is the time to speak up. It's the time to share our faith like never before. When there's someone that's going through this process, they need hope. And Jesus in us is the only hope that we can really give them. Well, there's so much in hidden treasures, so many hidden treasures, if you will, <laughs> finding hope at the end of life's journey, a lot of scripture, ways to cope with a diagnosis that says uh, you're, you're making your way to heaven. And for those who care for them, both literally and uh, lovingly, this is a great resource to provide you the tools you will need. Again, the book is titled Hidden, Hidden Treasures, Finding Hope at the End of Life's Journey. Uh, Robin Bertram is the author, and the book is published by Abingdon. Thank you so much for talking with us today and for this great resource to help us um, make that final journey and to do it well. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it's an it. an honor. Again, Hidden Treasures. We're going to take a break here at the top of the hour in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, coming up in that 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Nick Loris. He's a Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow in Energy and uh, Environmental Policy, the Center for Free Markets and Regulatory Reform. We're going to talk about problems with the new climate change report. And we'll talk with Alexis uh, uh, Mrachik who's a research assistant uh, in Russian and Eurasia policy at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. We'll talk about uh, what happened in um, uh, in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine most recently. So join us. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend, by the way, is producing and engineering today's program. He is exhausted. Just takes a lot to pull that all off. Well, in this hour, we're going to talk with Nick Loris. He is with Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow in Energy and Environmental Policy at the Center for Free Markets and Regulatory Reform at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about problems with the new climate change report. Uh, issued on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. We'll also talk with um, Alexis Mrachik. She is a research assistant in Russian and Eurasia. She's a Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy uh, analyst. And we'll talk about uh, what happened between Russia and Ukraine, how to interpret that, and maybe explain a bit of the timing that may make it um, make a little more sense, and not that it was right uh, to have uh, happened, but at least to put it in some context. She'll be joining us later this hour as well. Also want to try to put some context with the uh, uh, the death of John Chow, understanding his motivation, his preparation, and what his intent was. This was the young man from the state of Washington who lost his life attempting to reach one of the um, most remote tribes in the world. So we'll talk more about that and offer some uh, Suggestions if you'd like to learn more, some resources that are available. Well, a federal judge is expected to rule soon on whether Obamacare's individual mandate is constitutional without a tax penalty to enforce it. And if it's not, whether the rest of Obamacare's provisions, including its insurance regulations, are no longer operative. Well, if the judge rules against Obamacare, as many predict the judge might, brace yourself for a tsunami of hysteria. Washington's uh, chattering class, they're going to proclaim that the apocalypse is fast upon us. Of course, we've heard it so often now, it's like 
Chicken Little, but millions of Americans with chronic illnesses at risk of losing their insurance coverage and so on. Um, That may or may not be the case, but the ruling would do nothing of the sort, even if the Supreme Court were to uphold it. In the near term, it uh, most likely will have no effect at all. What it would do, however, is give states new space to create policies that benefit their own residents, the sick, the healthy, the poor, those with pre-existing conditions. For that reason, Congress should resist the urge to act in haste. I mean, they've moved very slowly up to this point, so I would hope they'd be deliberative in moving forward. The case, Texas versus Azar, it arises from a series of Washington blunders. Democrats uh, crafted the Obamacare statute, some would argue clumsily. Republicans bundled uh, its repeal, and on two occasions, Chief Justice John Roberts employed um, somersaults of statutory interpretation, as one writer put it, as the late Justice Anthony Scalia dubbed them, to save Obamacare. These decisions made further legal challenges to the law virtually inevitable, and this is just another of them. Well, at the heart of the Texas versus Azar case is the so-called individual mandate, the requirement that every American have health insurance. Six years ago, Justice Roberts held that Congress has no constitutional authority to impose such a requirement, but he sustained the mandate because it levied a tax on the uninsured. And his uh, convoluted reason Congress cannot require you to buy insurance, but it can tax you for not buying it. You try to figure that out. Well, last December, congressional Republicans left the mandate on the books, but reduced the tax penalty to zero percent or zero dollars. Plaintiffs in Texas versus Azar, they argue that a tax of zero dollars is no tax at all. Citing Roberts' reasoning, they assert that the mandate without the tax is unconstitutional. They further argue that if the mandate falls, the rest of Obamacare must fall with it. Once again, they cite Roberts, Justice Roberts, who looked beyond the law's plain meaning to its context and structure, which he said inextricably bound the individual mandate to the law's regulations and subsidies. End quote. Well, under Roberts' reasoning, plaintiffs argue the courts um, must strike the individual mandate and the law's subsidies, regulations, and Medicaid expansion along with it. Well, the Trump administration lawyers agree that the individual mandate is unconstitutional. They also agree that the pre-existing condition regulations can't be severed from the mandate, something the Obama administration also asserted. But Justice Department lawyers also argue that the court should leave the subsidies and Medicaid expansion in place. Whatever the judge decides, his ruling likely will have no immediate effect on the federal regulations. It may be years before the Supreme Court issues a ruling, although it could act much more quickly. They do that on occasion. But even if the high court were to strike down the federal rules, states would retain the authority to regulate health insurance. Nearly every state, not the federal government, currently enforces the Obamacare insurance regulations. The Obamacare statute gives the federal government power to enforce those rules in states that have chosen not to do so. Texas versus Azar could strike down the federal government's regulations, but it would leave intact the authority of states to regulate insurance. Kind of a long, convoluted, detailed story, but that decision is pending. Well, states have taken a variety of approaches to inform Obamacare's requirements. Some state legislatures have simply written them into state law. Those state laws are beyond the reach of federal judges. Other states have incorporated federal statutes by reference. For example, some state laws require insurers to meet community rating requirements established by the Affordable Care Act. Still, others apply these regulations through administrative actions. If the Supreme Court were to invalidate the federal regulations, it's possible that enforcement in these states may be vulnerable to legal challenge. Well, states needn't wait for the Supreme Court to rule or Congress to legislate. They can act now. Even states 
um, uh, every state rather goes into their legislative session next year. Governors and legislators in many states may favor writing the federal statute into their state codes. As the recent election showed, these regulations are politically potent. Conservative lawmakers who once denounced the pre-existing condition regulations in the name of freedom embrace them in the hope of re-election. Few candidates promised voters they would repeal those regulations. But states would also be free to explore other ideas to protect people who have pre-existing conditions without pricing health insurance out of the reach of those who don't. Well, states could pursue innovative regulatory approaches to improve their insurance markets, approaches that would uh, take effect were the Supreme Court to strike down the federal regulations. Well, it goes on from there, but the uh, the point is, at this point, a federal judge is expected to rule soon on whether Obamacare's individual mandate is constitutional without a tax penalty to enforce it. That, of course, will not be the final word, but it will be an important one in this move toward whatever ultimately we will settle on as the health insurance uh, landscape here in the United States. Well, after a two-week break, the Supreme Court has returned to hear its final round of cases for 2018. Among the issues that the court will address are whether half of Oklahoma is an Indian reservation, excessive fines, and double jeopardy. Carpenter versus Murphy is half of uh, Oklahoma and Indian reservation, the question at hand. That's the argument Dwayne Murphy is pressing to challenge his conviction in state court for mutilating and murdering his romantic rival in Henrietta, Oklahoma. Murphy is a member of the Creek Nation, and he claims that the crimes took place within the boundaries of the Creek Nation, and as such, the state did not have jurisdiction to prosecute him. The only problem for Murphy is that Congress disestablished the Creek Nation along with several other Indian tribes when it created the state of Oklahoma in the early 1900s. Oklahoma was granted statehood in November of 1907, rather, by applying a three-part test established uh, in Solem, that's S-O-L-E-M, Solem versus Bartlett in 1984, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit agreed with Murphy, with Murphy, uh, finding that no federal statute expressly terminated the Creek Reservation, despite a series of laws that dismantled the Indian territories in Oklahoma and stripped the tribal governments of any meaningful authority. The court will be deciding on that. They'll hear arguments in that case. Well, today, the 27th. Then there's Thames versus. Indiana. Most people would probably be surprised to learn that not all the guarantees in the Bill of Rights apply against state governments. And though the Supreme Court made clear in Barron versus Baltimore back in 1833 that these rights restricted only the um, federal government, subsequent Supreme Court decisions starting in the 1920s incorporated many of these guarantees against state governments. Today, like the federal government, states may not abridge free speech, establish official religions, or engage in unreasonable searches and seizures. Well, in this case, uh, the court will hear arguments uh, on the 28th to determine whether or not, in in this case, um, Thames versus Indiana, that applies. And then there's Gamble versus the United States. The Fifth Amendment's double jeopardy clause provides that people may not be prosecuted more than once for the same crime. But the Supreme Court carved out an exception in the 50s allowing prosecutions in states and federal courts for the same conduct. In Abate versus United States and Bartkus versus Illinois, the court determined that the Constitution does not prohibit dual prosecution by separate sovereigns, reasoning that conduct violating each sovereign's laws does not count as the same offense for purposes of the double jeopardy clause. 
Well, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Clarence Thomas have noted concerns about the harassment of multiple prosecutions in state and federal court. Thus, if the court overrules the separate and sovereign exception, it might be with an unusual coalition of uh, justices. Arguments will be heard on the 5th of December, which is right around the corner. These are just a few of the important cases coming at the Supreme Court. In the uh, first part of 2019, the justices will also hear cases involving the Trump administration's inclusion of a citizenship question in the 2020 census form. An Establishment Clause challenge to a nearly centuries-old World War I memorial and whether the 21st Amendment authorizes states to place residency requirements on retailers seeking to license, rather seeking a license to sell alcohol. We learned today uh, that the Oregon budget officials predict $623 million shortfall. Oregon's humming economy might not yield enough tax revenue to avert a gap in the next two-year budget. The state's budget budget, uh, analyst said in a report today, the state's general fund and lottery revenues could total $23.6 billion from 2019 to 2021, a 5% increase from the current budget, yet the state could still go to $623 million in the red, according to a tentative budget overview from the Legislative Fiscal Office and Department of administrative services. Up next, we're going to talk with Nick Loris. We'll talk about problems with a new climate change report. That's up next, right here on the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You are listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the latest version of the National Climate Assessment was released on Black Friday. This 1,700-page report had some flaws in it, or at least the way it was conducted could be questioned. Here to talk with us about that, the timing as well as the content, is Nick Loris. He's the Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow in Energy and Environmental Policy at the Center for Free Markets and Regulatory Reform at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, let's talk about the National Climate Assessment, what it is and how often it's, uh, it's produced. Sure. Well, it's a a federally mandated report, so one of the reasons that uh, the Trump administration released it is because they are required to do so by the law, and it's come out um, every year now for five years, uh, and it is a a detailed report, uh, as you mentioned, 1,700 pages uh, on a a lengthy number of topics related to uh, how the climate is changing and why, uh, what that means for um, current and future uh, scenarios in, in different parts, but really with a focus on the United States, which is different from the Intergovernmental mm-hmm. Panel on Climate Change's report, which is focused on global climate change. Now, before we talk about the four problems with this new climate change report that you point out in a piece uh, published by the Heritage Foundation, the president, the administration, took some criticism for releasing this uh, thing on uh, Black Friday when uh, people are less likely to pay attention as if this were some new phenomenon uh, introduced by this administration for the first time. Not so much the case, as you point out. No, not at all. You know, this is a tactic um, that dates back a long time. Both Republican and Democrat administrations have done this uh, all over the place with a number of different topics. The Obama administration famously did it um, for uh, documents related to Solyndra and emails that were requested by members of Congress, and they would do these late Friday night document dumps um, as a result of these congressional inquiries. Um, the uh, other major EPA regulation that they had 
which was a, a regulation that would increase the price of gasoline, they introduced that regulation on, on Good Friday. And so, um, again, this is nothing new. Um, each administration is going to get criticized for it, but it certainly um, isn't a new tactic by this administration by any means. So we should maybe back away from the brink just a bit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, speaking of the brink, the report itself is enough to uh, to make everybody uh, sell all that they have and try to find a remote place where they might be able to survive the coming apocalypse. Let's talk about what you um, write about, and that are four, that is four problems with the new climate change report. The first one is that it wildly exaggerates economic costs. Uh, in trying to understand and, and interpret this report, it's important to consider uh, these four things. Let's talk about the first. Yeah, so the the cost number that everyone grabbed onto, you know, was the headline of the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, a number of major media outlets, as well as uh, all the TV publications that reported on this, that this climate change uh, imminent doom could result in uh, a 10% drop uh, in U.S. gross domestic product by the year 2100, which is a huge, huge percentage drop. I mean, during the Great Recession, um, it was uh, less than half that. It was about 4.7%. So we're talking about a huge chunk of the economy. But that came from one study uh, that was funded um, in part by Ego Warrior uh, Tom Steyer, um, as well as former New York City Mayor um, Bloomberg. Uh, their foundations funded this study, and it assumed a, a huge projection of increased temperatures uh, upwards of 15 degrees Fahrenheit, which is just wildly unrealistic, even amongst the the mainstream climate reports. And so to to kind of just cherry pick this one number and say that's the cost of inaction is a a gross misrepresentation of what the economic and climate literature actually say. You also suggest that uh, the climate report, and this is something we need to know, it assumes the most extreme and least likely climate scenario. Yeah, the, the thing with climate change and time to predict what's going to happen in the future is to give different scenarios and pathways. And, and in the climate literature, this is known as representative concentration pathways. And uh, there are four major ones used by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, and the one that is most extreme, uh, again, seems wildly unrealistic that it would ever likely happen. Uh, It uh, assumes uh, tremendous population growth with uh, low economic growth, but huge increases in CO2 emissions, um, using uh, amounts of coal that are close to uh, almost not even having enough coal underground in the world to um, actually meet their projected coal consumption, uh, as well as low increases in technological growth, which don't match up with reality. And so part of the other um, you know, misrepresented information in this climate report uh, is that it, it represents this concentration pathway of greenhouse gas emissions uh, that, one, aren't, aren't matching up with reality, but at the same time, this representative concentration pathway is being phased out, uh, again, of even the mainstream climate literature, just because it doesn't seem like it's a representative scenario of what's going to happen.
You write in one paragraph, to put it plainly, Representative Concentration Pathway 8.5 assumes a combination of bad factors that are not likely to all coincide. And later you write, when taking a more realistic view of the future of conventional fuel use and increased greenhouse gas emissions, the doomsday scenarios vanish. Again, putting it into context. The third thing you say we need to know about this uh, new climate change report, it cherry picks science on extreme weather and misrepresents timelines and causality. Yeah, this is pretty peculiar because just last year, uh, the National Climate Assessment that was released had a a number of good statistics and factual information on extreme weather. It said that, you know, we're looking at, you know, centuries worth of data um, that we're not experiencing more frequent and intense natural disasters, even with increased CO2 emissions. Uh, There's um, actually been a downward decline in in hurricanes reaching the continental United States over the past century. And and this report um, really doesn't make a whole lot of mention uh, of those trends. And instead, it seems to pick different areas in which uh, it tells a different narrative. So rather than looking back at a century, they'll start the data at 1985 for wildfires because that's when it looks like there's a a projection and an increase because there is over the 30-year to 40-year time frame. But dating back a century, it doesn't say that. Uh, The same with floods uh, and droughts and heat waves. And so um, this is something that I think both sides are honestly guilty of is kind of using um, different statistics to tell the narrative that they want to believe. Um, but, But with regard to this national climate assessment, that again is what got a lot of the attention is that we're experiencing the cost of man-made climate change now. And we're seeing these upward trends when dating back historically and looking back even further than the past 50 to 60 years, we're not really seeing the trends that they project. Mm. You're right. Dismissing the complexity of factors that contribute to a changing climate and how they affect certain areas of the country is irresponsible. Finally, you suggest that we need to be aware that energy taxes are a costly non-solution. And of course, that is uh, ultimately in many of the reports, including this one, uh, the, the goal, making public policy um, prescriptions. That's right. And this one doesn't specifically make any policy recommendations, but that's usually with all climate reports that what people pay attention to is the summary for policymakers. And this one pretty much insinuates that we need to uh, drastically reduce fossil fuels. And we've seen already calls for a a new green deal that mandates 100 percent of renewables by the year 2030 um, or massively taxing CO2 and, and other Um, conventional sources of energy. And uh, again, this would just be a very, very costly non-solution. It would not just raise uh, the electricity bills and the price at the pump for American households and businesses, but it would raise the cost of everything we do because energy is such a necessary component of everything we make and do. And so it acts like a, a vice that contracts the economy from the supply side and the demand side to the result of trillions of dollars lost in gross domestic product and and most importantly for no climate benefit so even if the climate projections in this national climate assessment were to come through these policies wouldn't do anything to to abate warming uh, even if they were to come true Well, I appreciate your helping us to look beyond the headlines uh, and to think more critically about this issue. Nick Loris, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Happy to. Appreciate it very much.
Again, Nick Loris is the Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow in Energy and Environmental Policy at the Center for Free Markets and Regulatory Reform at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk with Alexis Mrachik. She is a research assistant on Russian and Eurasian issues at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've been watching with interest things unfold in the Ukraine, Russia's latest aggression against Ukraine. Um, resulted in um, uh, Russian Federal Security Service Border Patrol boats opening fire on three Ukrainian maritime vessels. And we've been following that story. But what about the timing? What's the motive here? Our next guest has some insight into what happened and what um, why this uh, time in particular and what it might mean. Alexis Mrachek is a research assistant on Russia and Eurasia. <clears throat> She's also with the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I suppose we shouldn't be altogether surprised that Russia is expressing uh, another round of aggression toward the Ukraine. But uh, what uh, the question I think many of us have uh, have had is why now and what this uh, particular set of events might mean. So maybe we can begin by just reviewing what happened. Yes. Well, on Sunday, Russian Federal Security Service Border Patrol boats um, prevented um, three Ukrainian naval ships from entering the Kerch Strait, which is a narrow body of water separating the Black Sea from the Sea of Azov, which borders both Ukraine and Russia. Um, then Russia fired at those three ships and injured six sailors. Um, Russian forces then boarded those boats, seized the vessels, and um, seized three, 23 Ukrainian sailors. So it was a pretty dramatic event. Um, and as a result, the Ukrainian military was placed on high alert, and Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko just declared limited martial law for 30 days in Ukraine. Um, and both Ukraine and Russia are blaming each other for the event, mm-hmm. but it's important to remember that Russia is the one at fault here. Russia is the one that, um, you know, four years ago illegally invaded and annexed Crimea then started the war in the eastern Donbass region of Ukraine and has now started this conflict in the Kerch Street. Now, let's talk about this uh, this area where the aggression took place. Does international law speak to um, who has the right of way and whether or not Russia was uh, in uh, was right to uh, stop these vessels from moving in this area? Um, Yes, that's a very good point that you make. Actually, um, Russia was completely illegal in its actions against Ukraine. Per a 2003 treaty, um, both Ukraine and Russia have legal access to the strait. Um, but just this past summer, um, Russia actually con- constructed a bridge um, connecting Crimea to the Russian mainland. And so they have been really hindering um, Ukrainian uh, commercial vessels from going in and out of that strait under the bridge. And... Um, because of recent events, um, Russia has been provoked and it decided to start this conflict on Sunday. Now, it's important to point out that this is a, cre- a key trade point uh, for Ukraine and the only route by which it can reach, uh, uh, reach it by sea through the Kerch Strait. So this is strategically important to Ukraine, aside from uh, the legality or illegality of Russian action. This is strategic. Russia obviously knows that. Yes, definitely. Mariupol is a city that rests on the Ukrainian coastline off the Sea of Azov. 
and it exports ferrous metals to dozens of countries around the world and is a key trade port for Ukraine's economy. So the fact that Russia has been preventing and um, delaying some of these Ukrainian vessels from going in and out of the strait has really been hindering Ukraine. Now, you make the point in uh, your piece um, that uh, you can find on the Heritage Foundation website. It's a commentary uh, that the the timing of this is not um, not a coincidence. It's linked to a number of things, uh, not the least of which is the approval rating of Vladimir Putin. Let's talk about what happened two months ago uh, with the U.S. Coast Guard when they signed off on providing uh, patrol boats and some other agreements that were made fairly recently. Yes, you're so right. Um, the timing is, is really not a coincidence. Um, just two months ago today, actually, um, on September 27th, the U.S. Coast Guard signed off on a um, an agreement providing Ukraine with two patrol boats within the next year. Um, and then also um, Britain announced recently that it would be sending more of its troops into Ukraine for training. Um, and also this past week, um, the Ukrainian parliament, Verhovna Rada, um, held its first hearing of new constitutional amendments um, that will be providing future membership for Ukraine and the European Union and NATO. Um, so these events alone are enough reason for um, Russia to be provoked. Um, all of these acts are, um, you know, they're part of the Western alliance, and um, the West is, of course, an enemy of Russia. And um, so it's it's really not a coincidence um, that all of these things happen um, in addition to um, the struggle of um, Putin's approval ratings recently. Yeah, you point out in, in your piece that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin's approval rating has dipped significantly, and this might be a way of trying to distract uh, the Russian people and also to elevate those numbers. He's done something similar in the past that was very useful. Talk about the economic situation there and how he thinks this might boost his approval rating. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, on top of all these things, um, Putin's rate, approval rating is at its lowest point since 2012. Um, and this is due to unwelcome pension reforms. The pension reform was, um, the pension age rather, was raised um, for men from 60 to 65. And then for women, it was also changed. And this is very unwelcome among um, Russian citizens. And there have been dozens of protests um, in Russia because of it. And it's just a very poor socioeconomic situation. So that is um, probably the main reason for Putin's um, low approval rating right now and why it's suffering so much, um, which leads me to, um, you know, because of his low approval ratings, he very well could have called for this new conflict in the Kerch Strait because just four years ago, um, his approval ratings um, were suffering um, dr- dramatically. But then when he illegally annexed um, Crimea from Ukraine in 2014, his approval rating skyrocketed. So it's just a huge act of um, Russian nationalism, and um, it's a way, it's a tactic of Putin um, to distract Russian citizens. You also remind your leaders that later this week in Buenos Aires, in Argentina, the group of 20 is going to be holding a summit at which President Trump and Putin are supposed to meet, uh, and that it's probably not in the best interest of the group of 20, and certainly not the United States, to give him that privilege. What's the meeting about beyond uh, arranging this kind of uh, FaceTime. Um, yes, actually, yeah. Um, it wouldn't be good at all for uh, Trump to uh, keep his meeting with Putin. Um, this meeting is at the G20 summit. The G20 is a group of 20 countries from around the world, and they're going to meet at the summit to talk about economic issues and 
on democracy and that kind of thing. And uh, Trump is supposed to meet Putin at it, and he should refuse this meeting now, especially because of what's happened in Ukraine um, this week. And um, we need to remember that um, Russia is the aggressor and Ukraine is the victim. And, um, you know, President Trump needs to keep that in mind. Well, let's hope that that will, in fact, be the case. Alexis, thank you so much for talking with us. I appreciate it. Yes, thanks so much for having me. We'll continue to watch uh, events as they unfold in that region and see what the rest of the uh, Western world has to say about uh, the Ukraine. Now, as she mentioned, on the 22nd of this month, the Ukrainian parliament held its first reading of its new constitutional amendments, which would provide Ukraine full membership in the European Union and in NATO. And, of course, this uh, certainly displeases um, Russian President Vladimir Putin. So it's an interesting time uh, to watch, and we can only hope and pray that it won't escalate into something uh, much larger. Although for the Ukraine, it's been escalating uh, since the the, uh, annexation of Crimea. So we'll we'll keep our eyes focused on that. Up next, we're going to talk about um, understanding John Chow. He is the American missionary. He's from uh, the state of Washington who attempted to meet one of the most remote tribes in the world to try to share the gospel with them. Now, the initial reports were, and I remember reading the headline, that some kid, you know, this young man tries to go to this remote island. Uh, It's against the law in India to make that effort. Uh, He did it anyway. He was an adventurer, and that's what it was all about. Well, we've since learned that it's a much deeper story, and uh, we've been trying to cover little bits of it over the last, uh, well, yesterday and today. So we'll share a little bit of that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. This is the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I don't know about you, but I've been uh, intrigued by the death of John Chow, who lost his life attempting to share the gospel with a very remote tribe on an island off of the coast of India. And the initial report said he was an adventurer and he was just attempting to... Um, go someplace where he was forbidden to go. We've since learned that there was much more to his story. In fact, he had spent a considerable amount of time preparing for uh, this connection with this uh, Sentinelese people on North Sentinel Island. Uh, He had made uh, an attempt prior to his death. So this wasn't just, I think I'll just go to a remote uh, forbidden island. Well, I uh, noted um, that there was a press release today that provided additional information. And if you're interested in more of the backstory, I would encourage you. The um, New York Times had a piece. It's dated the 22nd, but it talked about the Sentinelese tribe that killed this American and the history of guarding their isolation. Uh, you can learn more about them there. And also there was a piece that was um, that appeared in the ministry that he had been Uh, connected to that I thought was very well done. Someone who has been a missionary for many years, and now I'm trying to find the the source, which seems to have escaped my printing of it. Uh, Anyway, the the headline was John Allen Chow, and it's C-H-A-U. He was no fool, and you can find that there. It's an account of what does it mean to reach the unreached peoples and he, uh, he writes about this young man and, and his own uh, experience as a missionary and going to those who have never heard the gospel, even when there's danger associated with it. And this gives me a great excuse to mention that Mission Connection is coming up in early January. If you're interested in missions, not necessarily going to a, a dangerous location like John Chow did, but if you'd like to learn more about how you might use the gifts that God has given to you in order to um, fulfill the Great Commission— uh, you can attend uh, Mission Connection. We'll be talking about that in the weeks ahead. But 
if you have a heart for missions or you're more curious about it, that's a great way to start to really begin to uh, consider how God might use you, whether that's staying here at home or going abroad. Anyway, this latest uh, coverage on um, on John Chow, I thought was a, a bit more enlightening. Covenant Journey published this one. It was the last words of John Chow's journal. Uh, they point out that his final days and hours were chronicled in his personal journal. It displays his heart for the Sentinelese people and his love for Jesus Christ. Since high school, John had a heart for the Sentinelese and had made extensive preparations. Now, we didn't know that. Extensive preparations. This was his third trip to India and to the Andaman Islands since 2015. According to All Nations, he underwent extensive training as a missionary in 2017. He was a survivalist, mountain climber, certified scuba diver, and EMT, and a skilled wilderness guide who had scores of people on hiking and camping adventures throughout the Pacific Northwest or led them. He knew how to survive in hostile climates and conditions. He packed an extensive medical kit that, among other things, included a a hermostat to pinch arteries, a chest seal in case of a puncture, and a dental forceps to remove arrows. Well, John was an American citizen, part Irish, part Native American, Choctaw, part African and part Chinese and Southeast Asian. He planned to make progressive contact with the Sentinelese by providing gifts to show he was friendly. After arriving, his his journal expressed his human emotion as he approached a group of Sentinelese. He wrote, I regret I began to panic slightly and I saw them string arrows in their bows. My thoughts were directed toward the fact I was almost in arrow range. I backpedaled facing Uh, facing them. And then when I got to the fish, I turned and paddled like I never have in my life back to the boat. I felt some fear, but mainly was disappointed. During his next contact, he was in a kayak near the shore. The islanders were yelling. John wrote that he uh, that as he sang them some worship songs and hymns, and they would fall silent after this. Then two of them dropped uh, their bows and took um, a dugout to meet them. Uh, He couldn't tell if they were truly unarmed uh, or not, so he was still at a safe distance away and dropped off uh, the fish and gifts. And at first, he pulled their dugout past the gifts and were coming at me, he writes. Then uh, they turned and grabbed the gifts, except for the shovel and A-D-Z-E. I'm not sure what that is. He paddled after them and exchanged some more gifts, he wrote. So I preached a little to them, starting in Genesis, and uh, disembarked my kayak to show that I, too, had two legs, because in a kayak, of course, that's not clear. I was inches from the unarmed guy. It was at this point a young boy shot uh, an arrow at John's chest, which burrowed halfway way into his Bible that he was holding out uh, while he was preaching. The arrowhead was thin, sharp metal. On November 15th, John wrote, I'm scared. There, I said it. Lord, let your will be done. If you want me to get actually shot or even killed with an arrow, uh, then so be it. I think I could be more useful alive, though. But to you, God, I give all the glory for whatever happens. I don't want to die. Would it be wiser to leave and let someone else continue? No, I don't think so. John also writes, it almost seems like certain death to stay here. Yet there is evidence of change in just two encounters in a single day. Will I try again tomorrow? He writes, yes, he will try again tomorrow. Watching the sunset and it's beautiful, crying a bit, wondering if it'll be the last sunset I see before being in the play where the sun never sets. Tearing up a little, God, I don't want to die. Who will take my place if I do? Oh, God, I miss my parents, he wrote. Well, even as John was planning what turned out to be his last trip, he prays, whoever comes after me to take my place, whatever it's after tomorrow or another time, please give them a double anointing and bless them mightily. 
His final letter written to his family states in part, you guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to whatever he has called you to. And I, uh, I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. End quote. Well, John concluded by writing, this is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of this tribe is at hand, and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God worshiping in their own language as Revelation 7, 9 through 10 states. I love you all, and I pray none of you love anything in this world more than Jesus Christ. He concluded with solo Deo Gloria and signed his name. Compelled by this love for Jesus and his desire to share his love with the Sentinelese, John went to North Sentinel Island And there he gave the ultimate sacrifice, a quote from Matt Staver, founder and chairman of Covenant Journey. Greater love has no one than this, and someone lay down his life for his friends. I would encourage you to do more reading on the subject, uh, because I think the initial impression, it certainly was for me, was what a foolish thing this young man did without knowing the rest of that story. Uh, It's challenging, and it certainly uh, just caused us to think about what does it mean to go to every tribe and nation and tongue, and what the cost of that might be, maybe to you personally in going, or maybe to you financially in helping to send others. In any event, do keep the Chow family in your prayers. Tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with uh, Tilly Dillahay, Seeing Green. Don't let envy color your joy. That's uh, coming up tomorrow on the Georgine Rice Show. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.